As of recording this episode in September of 2022, there have been 44,347 deaths in Canada due to COVID. I don't think a single one of them wanted to die of COVID or knew that COVID would be the cause of their death. But COVID deaths and long-term effects have caused many, including those in my family and maybe yours, to think about their deaths. It is a simple fact that we will all leave this world at some point. And the question really only is how or when. If you are someone who received a terminal diagnosis in the last six years, you may have been introduced to the option of medical assistance in dying by your medical team. Or if you were hospitalized, you may have been asked about advanced directives or DNRs, which are do not resuscitate orders. MAID allows someone who wishes to end their life relatively peacefully in a way that is on their own terms, the option to do so or however much death can be on one's own terms in the first place. MAID is an incredibly complex and personal topic. Some believe it is the best way to end someone's suffering, and others are concerned it will be used as a weapon against the marginalized or a way to sanitize death. This is part one of a two-part series on MAID. Today, we explore what it is and what it isn't, and how it might work when it's used in the hospice care system. In part two, we'll explore other perspectives, including those in the disability community and those from faith traditions. But if you have no clue what MAID is or where to start, start here. A quick note, we will be talking about topics such as terminal illness and suicide and disability, and of course, death. Without further ado, this is MAID, part one. Yes, my name is uh, Suzanne Desjardins. I'm uh, a volunteer with Dying with Dignity Canada and have been for the last eight years or so. And I'm also uh, a member of the uh, board of directors of the organization. Susan and Dying with Dignity represent many Canadians who for the past many years have been lobbying for ways to let people die on their own terms using tools that we have available and without the concern of social stigma or the law. Dying with Dignity Canada has been around for over 40 years now. Um, It is a a human rights charity, a national human rights charity. And our focus is really as an organization on improving quality of dying, protecting end of life rights, and helping Canadians avoid unwanted suffering. So some quick data here. Before 1972, suicide was a criminal act in Canada. After it was decriminalized in 72, it was still illegal to counsel someone to complete suicide or enable them to complete suicide, and it is still illegal to this day. But there was still a push to have an option available for those who did not wish to live with their health conditions or their terminal illnesses, but did not wish to push their loved ones through the trauma of suicide. MAID was introduced in 2016 as such an option. In 2016, there were around 1,000 completed MAID deaths. In 2020, there were almost 7,600, which accounted for roughly 2.5% of all deaths in Canada that year. In total, from 2016 to 2020, 
21,589 people have used MAID to die in Canada. Tell us a little bit about what some of the options were for someone nearing the end of their life before MAID was a reality. Mm-hmm. Well, um, clearly one of those options is still available and very important, and that is palliative care, um, which um, perhaps because it's not as available as we might wish, oftentimes uh, individuals only receive it if they're in hospice, for instance, or if they're approaching end of life. But it is a way in which um, pain can be managed and alleviated in a holistic context. And in fact, many individuals who have a medically assisted death um, have and are still receiving palliative care at that time. Um, I, I might want to quote the Carter decision's first paragraph when you ask about what was available to people prior to the change to the criminal code that came about as a result of, of the Carter decision. Um, so the first paragraph says, and this was in uh, 2015 when the decision was rendered, it is a crime in Canada to assist another person in ending her own life. As a result, people who are grievously and irremediably ill cannot seek a physician's assistance in dying and may be condemned to a life of severe and intolerable suffering. A person facing this prospect has two options. She can take her own life prematurely, often by violent or dangerous means, or she can suffer until she dies from natural causes. The choice is cruel. And I think for me that was, you know, that sort of summed it up in terms of um, why we, you know, we had to have a case like the Carter case and before that the Rodriguez case uh, 20 years previously, um, because people, you know, are uh, suffering from grievous and irremediable conditions because of the, the law. So the criminal code basically says it is a crime to assist someone um, to commit suicide um, because of that law. Um, people basically didn't have a lot of choices um, in terms of how their life might end. They had choices in terms of um, did they want to um, follow various courses of treatment that might be offered to them. They had choices in terms of things like uh, refusing certain types of uh, treatments that um, they might have found inappropriate or you know too painful or whatever they, they might have been. Um, but they, they didn't have a choice to, in a way, avoid the suffering unless, for instance, they were suffering so grievously um, and in such pain that uh, they, they received, you know, a palliative sedation, which essentially uh, would put them into a very deep uh, coma so as to try to ensure at least that their pain and suffering was not as significant. As we think about this, I think one of the things I know that I've talked about with people is that they have very big ideas about what MAID actually is versus what it may be. I'm wondering if there's any big misconceptions about MAID itself or those who are seeking MAID. The the number of um, practitioners of medical assistance in dying is relatively small compared to overall practice. And, you know, I think we certainly seen recent reports in the media that suggest that MAID is the equivalent of death on demand. 
Um, so I think there are two possible misconceptions. One is that, um, you know, uh, clinicians, wherever they may be in, in, uh, you know, family practice or in hospitals or, or whatever are promoting, let me call it assisted dying for individuals, um, as opposed to educating individuals on what options are available to them at end of life, should they meet certain criteria. (laughs) Um, And the other is that, as you say, you know, if you stub your toe or, you know, some other uh, minor ailment, um, or for instance, if you happen to um, not have the the means for certain uh, medications to alleviate your condition, that you will you will have assisted dying uh, again without any uh, requirements or anything else. One of the largest debates that people are having right now is what about the criteria around MAID and who qualifies and how that works. And Susan was willing to share with us about the qualifications and through the process of how MAID might work. So first off. You, you have to be a resident of Canada, you have to be an adult, and you have to have the capacity to provide informed consent and be covered under a Canadian um, healthcare system through one of the provinces or territories or uh, anyone, of course, covered under federal, federal uh, health uh, coverage. So those are just the basic criteria. And then... Um, when the original legislation was put into effect uh, in 2016, you had to have a grievous and irremediable uh, condition, affection, or handicap. You had to be in a state of irreversible decline, and you had to be experiencing suffering that was intolerable to you and could not be alleviated um, by treatments or other uh, procedures that were acceptable to you. And the fourth criteria that was put in place at the time of the original legislation was that your natural death had to be reasonably foreseeable. So those were the four criteria. None of that um, suggests that you would automatically be eligible um, for other reasons. You have to meet those criteria you have to be assessed by two independent clinicians. They have to agree that um, you meet all the criteria. They have to ascertain and ensure that there is no um, external um, pressure on the individual um, making the request. And um, they have to also uh, look into sort of what kinds of other options and treatments might be available and inform the individual of those as well. So that was the original state of the legislation. And then in um, 2019, a case was brought forward in Quebec. It's called the Truchon Gladu case by two individuals who met were assessed and met all the criteria, except that their natural death was not reasonably foreseeable. And they 
um, brought this case um, to the courts uh, because they felt they were being discriminated against um, because their natural death was not reasonably foreseeable. The end result was that their case was successful in the courts. It was not appealed either in Quebec or by the federal government. And in March of last year, in 2021, the legislation was changed. And uh, basically, that criterion of natural death being reasonably foreseeable was removed. So that led to quite a lot of um, changes to the law. Um, one change was to create what are called two tracks in assisted dying. One track is for individuals who still have, a, who do have a natural, reasonably foreseeable death. Um, and it um, allowed those individuals to, for instance, not have to um, abide by a waiting period. It allowed them to uh, prepare what's called a waiver of final consent, an agreement with their providing clinician uh, that covered the event that they lost capacity to provide informed consent before their date for assisted dying. And then it created a second track for individuals whose natural death is not reasonably foreseeable. Um, and that second track um, increased the safeguards and requirements um, for um, consideration and um, assessment for those individuals um, to try and ensure that, uh, first of all, a, a very, very thorough assessment took place and there is a minimum requirement of that assessment being 90 days unless the person is at risk of losing capacity to provide informed consent. That the clinicians um, consult with someone who has expertise in the condition that the person has. For instance, it might be um, a situation where a person has had you know, experience chronic pain for years and years and years. So if the two independent assessors do not have expertise in that condition, they are required to consult with uh, an individual who, who does. They are also required to um, basically research what possible um, counseling supports um, um, community care, et cetera, et cetera, might be available to the individual that could help them um, alleviate their circumstances and the pain that they're experiencing um, and to make sure that the person gives those serious consideration um, and, and perhaps will, you know, uh, find some relief in, in some of them that might uh, lead them not to uh, want to pr proceed with an assisted death. So those have been some fairly significant changes that have occurred uh, to try and um, ensure that the law is equitable, uh, while at the same timing, the time ensuring that um, individuals um, are making a, a considered choice um, and that they are fully informed of all their options as they're making that choice.
So with those big definitions of what made is and how it works, how might made work in a real world setting? What happens when someone is told they're going to die? If a person has a diagnosis of a year uh, or less uh, prognosis, then we are involved. This is Janice Craig. She is the bereavement coordinator of the Kawartha Lakes region. And if you're told that you are going to die, she is someone that you want to talk with and your family wants to be with. She's been working there for about six years after extensive training and experience with death and dying, including with MAID. So certainly hospice uh, is is uh, under an umbrella of the Hospice Palliative Care uh, Ontario Wing, HPCO, and we have very set out um, regulations. And it is the belief of hospice that we support people by providing the best palliative care available. And we do not uh, recommend made by any means. Uh, We want to support people where they are. Um, and we want to provide the best in pain and symptom management. Unfortunately, in small areas like ours, um, we don't have a lot of resources, and we have six beds for 72,000 people. So a number of our clients uh, will die at home, and they will die with their primary caregiver at their side, um, and they, they have some PSW, and some community nursing. So when the pain is is, uh, intolerable, sometimes the client, uh, if it's unable to be managed, and I won't won't say that that's every case. In fact, our doctors are, we have a a visiting team of doctors. They do an amazing job at at, at dealing with a person's pain. Uh, However, We also respect the right of the client to choose made. And a number of factors might come into their choosing made. Very often, we hear people state, I don't want to burden my family. It's too much for my wife, the caregiver. Or the pain is intolerable. My chemotherapy isn't working the way I want. And I would prefer to choose the time of my death. So that often uh, uh, is a scenario, Um, not all the time, but we have had some beautiful deaths. Uh, And when I say a beautiful death, it's a death that is chosen by the client and uh, family participates. Uh, So maid maid can have a place in, uh, in our role as well. Something that comes up in a lot of these conversations, including with dying people, is that idea of being a burden on themselves or loved ones. And this idea from some people who choose made, where it's not 100% clear that it's their own pain management or they themselves say, I am done, I can't live like this much longer and I choose to leave. And compared to that idea of being a burden, I can't make my family and my friends live with this suffering much longer, and I choose to make it easier for them. And I wonder if you want to, if there's any sort of insight that comes from that, or if 
how, how you feel about it, I guess. Well, my personal feelings around MAID and my professional feelings around MAID are completely different. I am probably the most conflicted person uh, that you're going to speak to about MAID. Uh, in a professional basis, uh, I have witnessed uh, stories from clients about wonderful experiences with MAID, and they 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 speak openly about what a what a beautiful time it was to have that opportunity to say goodbye. Uh, the client themselves dying felt that they were giving a gift to their family. Um, not all, not all the time. Uh, I did have a client once. Uh, his wife decided to have made, and she didn't share that with him. And it was the day of the procedure that uh, he learned about her decision. So not all made stories. Are are uh, wonderful, warm, you know, feely <laughs> type things, um, but but in my experience, the the clients who share with me, and now in a bereavement role, when they come to me and they say, my husband or my wife chose made, and it was beautiful, um, there there can be a certain peace that comes with that decision. So um, as I said, I'm conflicted personally because. Uh, I have a, a son who is 31 years old and developmentally delayed, and I'm a little concerned about where uh, disability and MAID intersects. Uh, however, there's another conflict. Um, in, in my family, Alzheimer's is, uh, is something to be very concerned about. Um, all of my grandparents and my own parents uh, are all have been affected by Alzheimer's. And I personally look at the toll that uh, our family went through with, with my father died uh, two years ago and my mother now has Alzheimer's and we are supporting her in long-term care. So it comes down to let's look at me. Uh, where does that fit in with me? And so on a personal, personal um standpoint, Maid and I wrestle. We wrestle uh, also on a theological uh, uh, basis. So, yeah. At this point, Janice and I started talking about an article that had been the catalyst for my exploration into Maid, where in early 2022, a 51-year-old woman in Scarborough used Maid to die. She did not have terminal illness, but was dealing with a chronic and lifelong condition that required avoiding substances like strong chemicals and smoke fumes, something which is almost impossible to avoid in affordable or public housing. After searching for accommodations for two years, she applied for MAID, and a month after her death, her loved ones released the letter that she wrote, which explained her reasoning. We spoke on the complications of where disability and illness and MAID intertwine. My son, as I mentioned, is 31 years old. He lives with a developmental disability, and he's fortunate enough to be high-functioning that he can live in his own apartment with supportive, independent living uh, supports from community living. So when we look at someone such as Alan, uh, who cannot manage his own finances, and we start going down the road of made being an option, uh, it, it really makes my blood turn cold. So what are the solutions? Well, that lady in Scarborough, quite frankly, she fell through the cracks. Uh, Alan has strong advocates in parents and two sisters. And fortunately for Alan, um, 
I, I know that he will always have advocates and he will be well cared for. But that's not the case with all people with disabilities. And having made, as you say, a first option uh, is very problematic. Our hospice supported a, a lovely lady. She was in her 60s. She had a developmental de delay. She lived in a group home and she had cancer. And her cancer was very difficult to manage. Uh, she, we decided at the end that uh, she was going to go back to the group home to die because that was her home. And dying in the hospital wasn't just a great scenario for her. And of course, right now, uh, MAID was never op uh, offered to her because she didn't bring that up. So right now, clients who say, uh, what are my options? And then if if the doctor says, well, there's oncology, there's radiation, there's what, whatever the case may be. Um, if the client brings up, what about MAID or what about this uh, dying uh, at the hand of the doctor? Um, well, then guess what? Uh, the conversation can go there. It, it's, it's problematic that the government may be moving to take that last step out. And that part worries me. Um, disability is a lifelong, uh, you live with it for forever. Uh, when we look at, uh, cancer, we know there's a, uh, if, if there's a prognosis of six months or left less, we know that made may be an option, uh, if that person chooses that. So I'm not sure what road we're going down. Uh, I do know that people need more supports in community. That goes without saying. And uh, we're just letting them fall through the cracks. It's, it's a real shame. One of the reasons that we know each other is because we were in seminary together. And one of the things I distinctly remember happening is we all had to go on a little internship, a site placement for one year. And some of us were in churches, some of us were in hospitals. And I remember you were at a hospice care that was dealing with MAID as it was first coming out and it was brand new. And it, I remember your conversations about it, that it was some of the most heartbreaking and still soul filling stuff. And no doubt it's, it was the place that influenced your call to work with bereavement and hospice and the whole dying network. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about that time when MAID was first coming out, what that looked like. Sure. Thanks for uh, reminding me about that, because when I was at seminary, we all had to choose a placement. And I chose the place that uh, I, I thought death scared me the most. I hadn't been around death. And I thought, well, if I'm going to uh, pursue the ministry, I really do need to confront that fear. And that was walking along, uh, journeying, journeying alongside people who uh, are dying. And, and that, was, that was my decision. And I never looked back. It is soul-filling work. And it is always an honor and a privilege to work alongside people who are dying. The dying have a lot to teach us. And yes, you're absolutely correct. The made 
uh, was just on the horizon. We there there wasn't the legislation. Uh, it wasn't even legal when I first entered uh, hospice care, and we watched it evolve. Uh, we as a hospice uh, watched how it evolved, and at the time. Uh, there were lots of questions. There were questions from our clients. There were questions from the medical uh, profession and, and our own volunteer force, people who would go into the home and support people. Uh, that it, it, was a, it was a learning curve. Over that time, uh, we started to experience within our own hospice made deaths. And we also started to support people who had been impacted by MAID. One of the things the former bereavement coordinator uh, thought would be supportive would be to have a support group strictly for those families who had had a family member die by MAID. And that never came to fruition because what happened was people wouldn't share necessarily that my husband died by maid. Instead, he he died of his cancer. And that was one of the things when the coroner's report does not list maid as the cause of death. In fact, it lists whatever the person had. Uh, if they had pancreatic cancer, uh, if their diagnosis was uh, congestive heart failure or uh, COPD, that was the determinant. And I think family members became a little more comfortable. Uh, certain people were, were told that their loved one had died by maid, but other family members um, made that decision that, no, that, that's a personal decision. I think respect is, is the big thing with maid. And, and we've, we've evolved, uh, certainly as a hospice, we've evolved um, and understand that this is a decision that is the client's decision alone. And, and we respect that. And I think that's why we didn't need a support group for people um, dealing with a maid death because we have evolved. People have, um, it not, I don't wanna say that it's been normalized, but I do want to say that as family members uh, started to share on a personal level their stories of a maid death, um, there's, there seemed to be less anxiety around, around a maid death. Uh, I work in a hospice. We have clients who choose maid. And um, it's, it's not prevalent by any means. However, uh, we as a hospice have, have uh, experienced that. We've supported families who've chosen MAID. And I would say 80% of the MAID deaths, the people who are left behind, who are my clients, they're the people who are coming through the bereavement groups. They don't have a problem um, sharing with others that their loved one, their most precious person who 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 chose to die by maid, made that decision on their own. Uh, yeah, there's guilt and regret. That's part of death. Uh, that's part of grieving. Uh, but very often, the one thing I personally hear in an intake interview is, I hope my wife didn't choose maid just to make it easier for me. That I do hear. Um, but they're, they, and this next breath, they're saying, but she assured me that this was a decision for her 
the not for me. So that's the type of conversations I hear uh, on it on a daily basis in my role. I'm wondering if you're able to share the difference that COVID has made in how people have grieved or have entered hospice care. Have, has COVID made any changes regarding made and those decisions? Or do you feel that's still a little bit too new for this to be played out just yet? Oh, absolutely. COVID has upended grief. Grief has uh, entirely been upended by COVID. Uh, what happened was in the past, prior to COVID, people were choosing to die at the hospital. They wanted to die at the hospital because they wanted their loved one to stop being their nurse and to start being their husband or start being their wife and let someone else care for them in their final days and give that gift of uh, just care to that to that caregiver and, and allow them to, to be a family member. Uh, however, as you know, uh, hospital protocols came into place and visitors were limited. We had a family, uh, the only one caregiver was allowed in the palliative care unit, and that was the wife, and she FaceTimed her three sons who were sitting in the parking lot in a car, uh, and she FaceTimed them so they could see their dad, and he died uh, while the boys were on uh, FaceTime. So what happened? This sort of story was getting out in our community, and families were choosing to... Uh, families were choosing to die at home. And the reason they wanted to die at home was the whole family could come to the house to say their goodbyes because there weren't any COVID restrictions on number of visitors. Uh, we had a, a person who chose to die at home and they had 30 people holding hands, praying uh, on the front yard and going in to say their goodbyes. It was a, it was a beautiful uh, decision. Uh, during covid a maid death meant that you could have six or seven people uh, in your bedroom or on the dock. We, we're in cottage country. We would have families. They would uh, sit out on the dock and uh, they had a glass of champagne quite often. Uh, they had songs, music playing, uh, chairs out, and uh, maid was administered on the dock. Um we did notice that deaths at home, uh, it, it totally changed around. Uh, deaths at home became more prevalent just because people want their loved ones near them when they're dying. And a made death allows you to uh, make decisions. What music do I want to have played? Do I want to have my pastoral care provider come and say some prayers, maybe read uh, some scripture uh, before before I have the procedure. Um, I have a million stories, Roberta. This could go on and on and on. But just as a general overview, yes, COVID uh, has impacted grief and people's decisions. Uh, certainly here, we are seeing complicated grief people who are grieving those loved ones who died in hospital and they weren't allowed to go in to see them. Um, COVID really upended the entire grief uh, scenario. And that's a topic for another day. Uh, I'm sure we could turn this into a series, especially as COVID moves from 
pandemic to more endemic or wherever we're going at. At this point of recording this podcast, the new variant vaccine will be released shortly, I guess, and we'll figure it out. But much of it is still to be played out. And it sounds like we're sort of seeing a sort of stark divide of death becoming in some areas, like in cities, almost more clinical, more sterile, because people still really can't get into hospitals. There are still restrictions. And so death has become even more removed. And in some more rural areas where restrictions are a little bit lighter, death has almost been cyclical and come back home where for the past century, people have died in hospitals with great frequency. And now people are going back to dying at home if they can, where we've always died as opposed to being in hospitals. So it feels very, it, it does feel sort of cyclical in this. And we may see in the future more people realizing that death as big and scary and confusing and as much as we don't like death at the same time, being able to do things like care for our loved ones at home with appropriate supports available will make a difference. And we'll see in the upcoming future what that looks like in the long run. Well, I think the Victorians had it right. You know, they they would uh, have death all around them. They accepted it. They uh, laid out the body in the parlor and they never talked about sex. Well, look at us nowadays. I mean, social media is full of uh, everything is about sex, but we never talk about death. And you know that as a society, we've got that wrong. Uh, we need to talk about death. We need to bring that into the conversation. And you're right. Uh, it has moved back into the home. COVID has done that. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Um, I, I think that hospitals uh, certainly take the uh, complications out of medications and, and give those people uh, who, who, in my case, kind of win the lottery by getting into one of those six beds uh, at the palliative care unit. Uh, other people, you know, they die, they die in other places in the hospital and it's not always ideal. But if you do die at the palliative care unit, um, there's a respect there. But yeah, it's, it's, totally turned it on its end. COVID has uh, redefined our our uh, death thinking. And you know what? Maybe not a bad thing. We owe it to each other to care for one another in life and in death and in moving from life to death. This is one of the reasons that made mean so much to so many. This is part one. It would be impossible to leave the story here. We hope that you will join us for the part two where we will bring in other perspectives on MAID, including from the disability community, other religious views, and stories from those who want us to open up about death. I want to thank Susan Desjardins from Dying with Dignity and Janice Craig for their expertise and involvement in this episode. For more information on MAID, including our guests, you can check out the description of this podcast. The Rooster Crows is run by Lawrence Park Community Church a united church here in Toronto. For more information about LPCC, including our other podcast episodes, our programs, and to know more about us, check out our website at lawrenceparkchurch.ca. Until then, I am Roberta Howie, and this is the Rooster Crows.
Thank you for joining us. Thank you.